these five main doctrines that were uncovered by these great theologians in the 1500s. They didn't invent them, they just rediscovered them. And they're doctrines that go against everything our culture teaches. To, to hold up a book that is this old and say, it is this book alone that describes how men and women can be right with God is something that would be, is, is really seen as, um, I guess by a lot of culture, as old-fashioned. Or uh, just kind of fairy tale land to, to kind of think that, that this is, is meaningful for today. But we believe that the Bible is the only way that we can discover how to be right with God. And the Bible teaches that it is Christ who is the exclusive way to heaven. Do you believe that? Christ is the exclusive only way to heaven. The only way to have a relationship with God. And a lot of times, uh, people add to that. They, they pollute it. I walked down to the gas station today, early morning, uh, get an AP, Arnold Palmer. If, if someone dropped uh, an eyedropper full of poison or, or mud or feces into that Arnold Palmer, I'm not drinking it. One, one drop taints the whole thing. And for anyone to say, well, yes, we, we do believe, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we do believe that Christ and grace are needed, but we also need to do our best and work, work our hardest, it pollutes the gospel. And it is no gospel at all. Galatians 1 says, to preach another gospel like that is to actually bring yourself under the curse of God. It is only through the grace, the unmerited favor of God through Christ that salvation is provided, and that grace is only obtained through faith. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. He just gives it to you. You buy your children presents at Christmas, not because they're good or they deserve it. Most often they don't. But you give it to them because you're gracing them. And in the same way, in a sense, God gives us his gift of grace. All we have to do is receive it. Well, why has God chosen to do it this way? It is so that no one can boast, but that he alone would receive the glory. We're not going to be in heaven patting ourselves on the back, saying, glad to see you here. Our focus is going to be on Christ and God and his glory alone. We've already read Revelation 5, and we'll be referring to it. We won't take the time to read it a second time, but let me introduce it this way. The book of Revelation, of course, as you know, is the last book in the Bible, and Genesis being the first book of the Bible, they, they serve as bookends uh, for all the rest of the books in between. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of endings. In the book of beginnings in Genesis, we read about creation and how the sixth day, at the very end of the sixth day, God sees all that he has made and he makes a pronouncement on it. He says that it is very good. He says it is very good. There is, there is no imperfection in all that he has made. Adam and Eve are walking with God in the garden, having this beautiful fellowship with him. There is nothing between man and God. Sadly, in Genesis chapter 3, we're taught how sin originated and was brought into the world through Adam's sin and, and God's wrath brought a curse upon this world so that the world is now ruled by devils. I was reading a little bit about Martin Luther uh, this week and that's him we just sang, and though this world with devils filled. You know Martin Luther didn't write it in English, he wrote it in German. And the translation actually is a little softer even than Martin Luther desired. It's not, though this world is devil with devils filled. Martin Luther really said, even if this world is filled with devils, like the devil, even if it's filled with devils, we will not fear. But at this point, 
The world is ruled by Satan, Ephesians 2, 2, and 3. And every aspect of our life is touched by the curse. The beautiful and wonderful and perfect world which God has created is only dimly reflected. Can you believe that? I mean, all you have Instagram and all that now and, and social media and everybody, everybody takes a picture of the sunset or the leaves turning. Oh, that's such a beautiful... It's like garbage. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's beautiful, yes. But can you imagine what it will look like with the curse removed? It is dimly reflected. Our work is difficult. Women have pain in childbirth. We are fighting constantly against sin. We talked about that in Sunday school as well. I'm saying that a lot because I encourage some of you to come to Sunday school. We have a great time in Sunday school. Classes for all ages, commercial over. <laughs> stuff for children, stuff for adults, all the way up. Anyway, there's a never-ending struggle against our temptations. James 4 says they wage war against us. And you have felt that, I know. We see injustice, disease, murder, hunger, famine, war, etc. All of this is a result of the sin of man. No one in this room this morning is untouched by some sort of sorrow or trouble, even if you don't share it with anyone. The ultimate curse upon us is our physical death, which is inevitable because of our personal sin. When you labor hard in the garden, when you sit at the bedside of your loved one, when you see the devastation on TV of all the natural disasters and wars, when you bury your spouse, your father, a child even, you're reminded that this curse in Genesis chapter 3 touches every aspect of our life. We live in a hurt and damaged world. So the rest of the scripture, really, is devoted to God's plan to fix it, to reconcile it, to redeem it. In fact, he began, we know that the plan of God to do this is in eternity past, but, but in, in our time frame, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God promised to, to fix it. In fact, it's called the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. He says, and I'll quote it, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your, your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall, excuse me, it shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 22, verse 8, in the illusion of Abraham, who, who's going up the mountain with his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, and is raising the knife to kill him on the altar as God had requested. Before they go up, Abraham says to his son, who asks, where's the lamb, father, for our sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide a lamb for himself, son. And they go up there, and as he's raising the knife, a ram is caught in the bushes, and it's an illusion to us deserving death and Christ coming as the sacrificial lamb. He's introduced to us that way in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees him and says, look, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then there are those of us who have received that lamb of God and with great joy, right, with great joy have entered into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can say, that through faith and repentance, God has removed our sin. He has justified us. He's made us free from the punishment our sin deserves. Be clear about this. Your sins will be punished. They were either punished in Christ, and upon your faith and repentance in Him, He, he takes that punishment for you, or you will pay that penalty for your sins for eternity in hell. 
We are being sanctified where the power of sin is being broken and we can now have victory over that sin in our personal lives through Christ. And one day, picture in Revelation 5, we'll be glorified where we'll all look around and say, where's sin? It's gone. Because God has fully and completely removed it. The struggle will be over. But for now, we live in a world that is cursed and we desire for it to be right again. Every time we see something like a tragedy or a, a situation that just reveals to us the curse of the world, many of us say, along with the end of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus, right? We say things like, Jesus, when are you going to return and write all of this? Wrong. It's the desire of every believer to have that fixed. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25 say, Something like this. Allow me to read a little bit of it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here's the summary of that. Everybody is groaning and waiting for Jesus to fix this broken world. Right? We're groaning and waiting for Jesus to fix this broken world. We long for things to be made right. Someone has said there are some things that are out of place in this universe, right? The church is out of place. The church belongs in heaven. According to Revelation 5, the church belongs there, singing and praising God. Satan's out of place. He belongs in the lake of fire. Christ is out of place. He belongs seated on the throne, reigning, receiving worship from everyone, not being rebelled against. And so we want these things to be right for, for God to say, like he said in Genesis, that things are very good again. Is this just wishful thinking? Is there any way this is going to happen? Now, I already said that Genesis and Revelation are the bookends of the Bible. Genesis tells us how the God created the world perfectly and then how it got messed up. And then the whole rest of the Bible is an explanation of how God is going to write it. And Revelation is yet future. And it demonstrates how God is going to make it right again. His plan will be fulfilled. Revelation is the story of God doing everything possible to bring people to himself. And Revelation describes an unparalleled demonstration of his divine wrath punishing the evil ones who do not want that to happen and refuse to repent. There is going to be an unparalleled number of uh, souls who will repent and turn to faith in Christ. We see that in Revelation. And uh, Revelation 5 is a prelude of all this as it gives us a glimpse of the glory of the resurrected Savior. So that's introduction. Here's the things we're going to say today. Okay? If you look at Revelation 5, there's some letter S words that I'm going to use to draw us through the passage. There's actually four of them. Okay? So the four letter S words, we've already read the passage, are these. There's a scroll. Okay? There's a scroll. Then there's a church. Then there's a Savior. And then there's singing. Okay, there's a scroll, there's a search, there's a Savior, and there's singing. So if you want to write anything down underneath those things, that will help. There's a scroll, there's a search, there's a Savior, and there's some singing. Okay, so the chapter opens in Revelation 5. You've got your Bibles open? Look down at it, please. Revelation 5 says uh, there's a right, uh, there's a uh, 
in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, uh, there is, he's holding a scroll. He's holding a rolled up piece of parchment. And there's writing on it, inside it and on the back. And there's, there's seals. Right, we, we, we don't use those type of seals anymore, but you probably can picture uh, something like them where, where someone would, would maybe uh, you know, fold up a paper, or let's imagine this is a scroll. Hopefully I don't need this anymore. And, uh, and you, put, you put seals on it, right? A little wax. Seal, 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 right? You understand? That's kind of the image. So he's holding this scroll with the seven seals on it. And there's writing, you can kind of see writing on it, and there's writing inside it. Well, what is this scroll? Question people have asked for years and years. A guy by the name of Robert Thomas, who just died a couple months ago, uh, was a professor at a, at a seminary, gave these different opinions. Okay? Here's what he says they could be. We, gotta, we, we should know what this is. Right? There's someone sitting on a throne in heaven, and he's holding this scroll. What is it? Here's what Robert Thomas says it could be. He says, perhaps it is the book of the new covenant. The New Covenant is a description of uh, God's new agreement with man that was sealed by the blood of Christ. Every time we celebrate communion here, uh, we quote, a lot of times we quote from the Gospels where, where Jesus is in the upper room in the Passover and he passes out the bread and he says, my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, then they eat the Passover meal. And at the end of the meal, he passes out the cup and he says, this cup is the New Covenant of my blood. It, 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 this is the new agreement. You can look at Ezekiel and find out all about that. He put a heart of flesh on us. He's making a new agreement. Genesis chapter, or Jeremiah chapter 23, I think it is. So this new agreement with God is now based on the blood of Christ, sacrifice for our sins. Maybe this scroll is the new agreement that God is making. But the problem with that is this, when the scroll is finally opened, it brings nothing but judgment. The new covenant is mercy. The new covenant is grace. And this is judgment. That makes sense. Second suggestion of what it could be, maybe it is the will and testament of the inheritance of the saints. Maybe it's all that the saints are going to inherit. Maybe it's all the saints are going to receive. It's like a, it's like a scroll, like a will, and when it's opened up, saints get this. But, again, when the scroll is opened up, judgment is poured out on unbelievers. Doesn't make sense. Finally, some say, this is the Lamb's Book of Life. There are so much writing on it. The Bible says it's got writing on it, in it, and on the back. Verse number one of chapter five. So maybe it's got all the names of the redeemed. Maybe your name is right there in Revelation 5.1. So when the scroll is open, then it would seem like John would reveal all the names that have trusted in Christ, but that doesn't happen and it doesn't make any sense. Here's what I believe it is, as well as most conservative people think that it is. The scroll is a title deed to the kingdom which includes the earth and all that is in it. Okay? It's like a contract. And this is the deed to the earth. This is the deed to all that has been created. And it's sealed up. Okay? And, and John would recognize this type of scroll that would be used for contracts in the Middle East during those ancient times. The details of the contract would be written on the outside and a summary of the contract written on the inside. Here's what one person said. Let me read this to you because it makes, makes good sense. The scroll that John saw is the title deed to the earth, which will be given to Christ. Now, this is important. Please listen to this. Unlike other deeds, it does not record what will be inherited. It records how he will regain his inheritance. That's important. Okay? So here's what the scroll is. It's the title deed to the earth, 
that belongs to Christ, right? Christ, the whole earth is Christ, he's going to be given it, he's going to be given it by God, but what is on the scroll is not, is not what Christ will inherit, it's how he's going to get it all back. He's going to get it all back through these judgments that are going to be poured out. Okay? It will tell us how Christ is going to redeem the world from Satan who has usurped that authority. This scroll is referenced in Ezekiel 2, verse 9 and 10, so it awaits in the hand of God the Father for someone who is worthy to open it up and pour out the divine judgments. Who is worthy to do that? At least it's number two. A search. We've got to find somebody who can open that scroll. Because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't want to say that yet. got to find somebody who can open that scroll. A mighty angel comes out. Look at verse, uh, is it verse number two. A strong and mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, Hey, who can open up this book? That's just the way I interpret it. That's what he's asking. Who is worthy to open this scroll and break those seals? Right? A universal search is made. Look where they look. Heaven. This is verse 3. Heaven, on earth, under the earth. And no one is found not only to open it, but no one can even look in it. No one is worthy to do that. The word worthy here means to have authority or deserving it. Or who has the position to do this? Like, like who, who, who is, is the worthy, worthy one who will bring, bring the earth to its proper conclusion and, and set everything in the right order? order. Think, Think about, about this. this. If, if the, the scroll, scroll stays closed, closed the scroll stays closed, and, and no one is found worthy to open it, what happens to the earth and all that has been made? If, if no one can open that scroll and bring the earth to its proper conclusion, Writing, this is how I introduced the message, writing all that has been wrong. No one can open it. That means no one can ever make the earth right again, and the earth and all of us will remain locked in sin and under the curse forever. You know what the response to that thought is? Look at, look at, look at what the Bible says. What is the response to that? No one was found worthy, so I wept. Imagine. You folks have all buried somebody very, very special and important to you. We all have. Anybody who lives any amount of time has buried somebody. And the only hope that is found in those moments is the fact that God's going to make everything right and we're going to see that person again. Imagine if all that weren't true. Imagine if all that weren't true. There was no way to be resurrected from your, from your grave. There's no way the earth is ever going to be unlocked out of this sinful curse. There would be great weeping. That's what happens in verse number four. I began to weep loudly because no one could find this. I'm the type of person that, uh, that has to have things corrected immediately. Um, you always chip your tooth on Friday night. You, know? you always chip your tooth on Friday night, right? Like you can't go in until Monday and then you call, oh, the dentist is on vacation. He won't, won't be back. Be back. Isn't, Isn't that, that the worst? worst? Right? That's, it's, it's like, like I gotta, gotta wait three, three days. days. I gotta have I this little jagged edge on my tooth. tooth. Come on! I, I wept loudly. Right? right? I mean, that's, that's such a, a minor thing. thing. But but, but that's the response, response, right? right? Um, um, we we can't find we can't find something. You know, we can't find the checkbook. It's been lost for three days. What are we gonna do? And and you just have this overwhelming sense of things. We gotta set things right. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at, uh, we have some little paint issues, you know, we got this uh, sound booth, and we got some drywall on the wall, and we got this little spot up here that's white, now I pointed it out, and everybody sees it, there's a little couple spots here, it's like, get that right, 
set these things in order. I can't stand looking at this. Now imagine that on the, on the universal scale, we're locked in sin. It's kind of like, oh, well, who cares? Right? We, we often have that response. We are grieved by the sin and righteousness. We sing songs about going to heaven and long for the day of Christ's righteous rule, but oftentimes we get more worked up about these temporal things. He weeps, this intense emotion. He's sobbing at the fact that Christ's kingdom will never be consummated and God will never be exalted the way he's supposed to be. But then, thirdly, there is a Savior. At the end of the search, they do find somebody. Now, this, isn't, this is nice. This is, this is a good part of the message. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. Imagine that was the end. No one was found worthy or to even look in the scroll. The Bible's done. But, verse 4, thank goodness, or verse 5, thank the Lord, goes on. One of the elders said to me, Knock it off. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Spurgeon says this at this moment. Our Lord always appears when all other hope disappears. When, it, when the question is asked, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals, and there was no response from heaven or earth because no man was able to open the book or to look in it, and these divine decrees must remain forever sealed in mystery, at that grave moment, the Lamb of God appeared. Listen to this. Where there is utter failure in everything else, in Christ our hope is found. I hope you have found utter failure in everything else. Last week we said... What is, what, is the, what is the idea of faith? We said faith alone. Faith alone is turning away from yourself in utter despair and looking at Christ alone. Here, here's kind of the idea of what people who think, uh, think that, you know, yeah, I need Christ, but I, but I need everything else. It's like you look at this story and you've got the scroll, right? you got the scroll and no one is worthy to open it. It's like, it's like us coming and saying, well, I can open it. I got it. Can you imagine the area? I can fix everything. You are the problem. We are the problem. Christ alone is the solution. That's what Spurgeon says. When all other hope is gone, Christ appears. He comes forth when no one else can help. Christ alone is the rock. Christ alone is there. Look how he's described. He's given uh, two different terms here. He's given the term, this is number one, he gives the term lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the ruler from Israel. This term represents authority and majesty and power. Isn't that interesting? He's going to be called a lamb later. He's a lion. The lamb has become that lion. Secondly, he's called the root of David. He's saying this is the promised one. From the lineage of David, the Messiah has come. There's so many Old Testament references to that. Jesus Christ is the worthy one. That's who's being described here. To take that scroll out of the hand of God. Can you imagine the arrogance and audacity of that move if someone's worthy? I just like that. I love that picture. God's holding that scroll. 
sitting in his throne. I mean, obviously this is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a hand. God doesn't have a body. But, but the idea of the picture here is he's holding that scroll. Who is worthy? The angel shouts out. Who can open this? We're looking everywhere. No one is found. And Christ comes up. I'll take that scroll. Because he is worthy to do that. Right? He can do that. But, if he, but that's arrogance if he's not. You know what I mean? It's like, give me that scroll. I'm going to pop those seals, open this up. I'm going to take what's mine. But he is worthy. I'm going to explain why. The Bible explains why. So he doesn't see, he doesn't, but this, this is what's an amazing vision of, of, of John. Here, here's the vision he's having. He's weeping loudly because no one can open the scroll and someone comes up and whispers and says, or whispers or shouts or whatever. He, I don't think it says how he does it. Said, it just says he said to me, verse 5, hey, stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Well, well, we, have a, we have a conquering lion here. And then he looks and he sees a lamb. Pretty ironic, isn't it? See verse 6? He sees a lamb. Now, now here's, here's, here's a, a real, real oxymoron. He, he sees, sees a lamb that has been, been killed standing. standing. When we have we funerals, have we usually we don't have the corpse standing up. So, so something has happened, happened here. here. As, As though it had been, been slain. That, that word means to be slaughtered. slaughtered. Do you remember when the lamb made his first visit to earth, Jesus Christ, enduring that punishment, that brutal beating, where it says he could no longer even be identified as a human. It said his vicious was so marred, he didn't marred, he didn't even look like the It's like, is that even a person anymore? Kind of like when you see a, a, a semi that has hit a deer. You, you can't even tell, was that a deer or was it, what was it? It's just been so mangled. That was Christ and his ultimate suffering. The beatings, the scourging, the punching, the spearing, the beard ripping, the flogging, and certainly the crucifying are all contained in that word as though it had been slain. But he's standing. That's, That's really out of place. place. He's been beaten, punched, mocked, killed, but he's standing. Because he is victorious over death, he has risen. He is not dead any longer. He's standing up. His wounds are visible, but he has risen over them. And here in that vision, that is one of the reasons he is worthy to take his rightful place, because he has died and he has risen. Secondly, it says... He looks at him, he sees the lamb standing in verse 6, and he also says, I see him with seven horns and seven eyes. That seems a little strange. It's a symbol, likely a symbol that means strength and power, perfect wisdom, perfect omniscience, and perfect knowledge. And the scene reaches its climax when he comes in verse 7. That's the image I just gave you. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The same, the same scene is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. God himself has given Jesus Christ the earth, the universe, the kingdom to be his to reign over it. And he is the one who is worthy to come open that scroll. And I, I think, to me, what happens is I start thinking about these things and, and, and preaching this to you. It's almost like, it's almost like these, great, these great truths are just coming out. And, and it's like you're trying to plug this hole in a dam. And you're getting these, these great, great truths, right? Like you're hearing the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and you're trying to push that back. And then and he's a lamb that has been slain, but, he, but, he, but he's standing, and he rose again. All of a sudden, you're just overwhelmed with this truth, right? And, and to me, it just, it just enthuses me, and, and, 
eventually it's like there's this there's this truth that cannot be controlled any longer and emotionally you're just just get to it already where Christ pops those scrolls and we just start singing to him I hope that's your feeling or it's kind of like is this almost over right what a picture we're getting here you know we can remember I'm not gonna say that let's go on one so we have the we have the um, the scroll which I've explained we have the search for who can open it and we have the Savior the lamb who can take that scroll because he was slain and rose has his perfect wisdom and obedience and then instantly upon that moment when he takes the scroll we have the singing number four he took the scroll Verse 7, let's, let's read it again. He went, because now, now we have the context here. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken it, we have instantaneous, uncontrollable worship. The living creatures, the 24 elders, fall down. They hold harps and golden bowls, and they instantaneously start singing. Because, as I've said, when he starts popping those scrolls, it's going to open up these judgments, and the rest of X, or, uh, Revelation 6 to 18 is all about the judgments, but these judgments are leading to the ultimate writing of the universe so that all will be made right again, and the people are just, they just rise up in this uncontrollable thrust of worship because they recognize that the beginning of the end is here. Last year, last year, uh, in, in, in this time, time, it was the World, World Series. And remember, the Cubs had not won the World Series for like 100 years, 110 years, something like that. And, and they're getting close to winning it. And it's kind of, I guess it's kind of becoming inevitable that they're going to win it. And you have this, you have this huge crowd in, in the stadium just erupts in this cheer. You have this outside. There's, there's literally tens of thousands of people outside the stadium just exploding. We waited 100 years. Remember what they called it? We waited 100 years for the curse to be broken. Leah showed me something on social media. We all know Aaron Coffey, who preached here a couple times. He's a Cubs fan. He was driving at the time. I mean, it's hilarious. He, he's got, we did it! Didn't know you really cared that much. Okay, a curse on a baseball team for 100 years. And, and in, a sense, in a sense, though, it's silly. We understand the eruption of joy, don't we? We understand it. We get it. 6,000 years, the curse of sin on the world, this eruption of joy in heaven, where you and I, if we're saved, we're part of this. Because the church is gone from the earth at this time. That's kind of another message for another time. We are part of this singing. And look at it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why are you worthy? Because you were killed. You were slaughtered. By your blood, you ransomed us. You made us, verse 10, kings and priests to our God. Jesus Christ is ultimately praised because he deserves the glory alone for all that he has done for us. He is due this praise. John looks around, verse 11, and he sees all the angels doing the same thing. Hundreds of thousands of angels, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive these things. He alone deserves this glory. You have a wrong view of heaven and a wrong view of eternity if this is what you think. 
I mean, is heaven, heaven just going to be, be we're just going to open the hymn book and start singing and that's all we're going to do? I mean, what? I mean, I know it's for eternity, but, but after a little while, we'll, we'll start enjoying ourselves, right? I mean, just gonna, we're just going to keep singing? Yeah. Yeah. And if you have a problem with it here, what makes you think you'll like it there? I'm floored by that. Thousands of people within driving distance of our church could come. They're sleeping, they're brunching, they're, maybe they're not golfing today, but they're getting ready for NFL, they're tailgating. But I want to be there in heaven. Why? You don't even want to enjoy an hour of it here. The ultimate point of heaven is that God and Christ will receive the glory that they are due in all of its fullness from those that they have redeemed. They are worthy because of his work. Christ is worthy because of his work on the cross, his power, his omnipotence, his wisdom, his granting to us of spiritual material riches. Incredible. Let me give you some applications, okay? Just three quick thoughts, and then uh, we're going to take a moment to reflect and meditate, sing. We're going to move into our baptism, but I don't want to leave without an application. First of all, so I, let me use our words to help us remember. First of all, Receive Christ's work. Maybe you never have. Maybe you've never believed in this Lamb of God who was slain for you. Receive that work. Maybe there's someone here today who have never recognized the saving work that Christ has done. Let me tell you this. There is nothing more worthy of your attention today than Jesus Christ. It's, it's amazing. And I'm a guy who loves sports, so I'm not knocking sports, but it's amazing that there'll be stadiums full all over our country today of people with painted faces and hundreds of dollars into, into clothes and food. And, and again, nothing wrong with that to a degree, but, but screaming their heads off for some stupid game. There is nothing more worthy of attention, more worthy of your commitment than Christ. It's amazing how I talk to people uh, un un unsaved people, people even people who may call themselves believers, or, I'm just so busy, i got so many commitments, so many different things happening, and everybody's busy, get that. There's no greater commitment that we need to be committed to than Christ. Who is the one who has the right and authority to forgive you of your sins? So receive that work today. Repent of your sins. As I said, it means turning away in despair from yourself and saying, I can do nothing, but Christ has done everything, and I receive him. Second, recognize Christ's Lordship. This is to the Christian. Who is worthy of your time? Who is worthy of your effort? Who is worthy of your attention? Who is the Lord of your life? Third, rejoice in Christ's victory. His victory is inevitable. Evil will be punished. Christ will bring everything into subjection and ultimately have the victory. We used to, uh, we used to in Lapeer, put on a Christmas concert every Christmas, and it was huge, huge. I mean, 50 people singing, uh, 20 people playing instruments, a big dramatic thing, kids singing, bells playing, decorations all over the place, do all these things. And uh, at, at, typically, well, anyway, typically during the... When the concert began, I said, let's, let's not applaud. You know, let's not applaud. Let's say amen if you like something. Because the point is, we're not praising. People were praising the Lord. But at the end, you'd say, okay, you know, if you want to thank everybody, now would be an appropriate time. People would clap. People clap for a little bit. Maybe 30 seconds. Thank you, thank you. We'd sing a little encore, and they'd be on their way. So I did a little research on this. This is, this is insane. I guess Pavarotti holds the record for encores. 
you know, someone, someone comes, comes out and sings. Oh, we loved it so much. Will you do one more? Encore. Not maybe maybe he wouldn't come back and sing, but he goes away. Right? Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. He's gone. And then they clap so much that he oh, I gotta come back. Oh, thank you again. Okay. He holds the record. You're not gonna believe it. You are not gonna believe it. He was encored once 165 times. Which means he went out and came back. Get this. 165 times. Thank you again. Good night. By the end of it, don't you don't you think someone's saying we're paying the babysitter, right? Who's the who's the buffoon in the front? It's enough. It lasted an hour and 15 minutes. People clapped for an hour and 15 minutes. Let me tell you. In heaven, heaven, we're going to sing a song, and somebody's going to say, again. again. We're going to sing, sing it, and somebody's going to say, again. And somebody's going to say, again, 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 again. Because the Bible says, or because this great song says, and this is true in Scripture, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And if that's, if your heart doesn't say, I'm ready for that, I want that, then you have, I'm telling you this lovingly, you have a problem. You have a problem. Let's pray about it. Father, we thank you so much for those who have come today and listened to this message. We ultimately thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the worthy one. And God, one day we'll be in that heavenly chorus and someone will shout, let's sing it again, let's do it again. He deserves more, he deserves it all. And Christ, you alone are worthy for who you are and what you've done. And Father, I pray if someone's heart is not warmed to that thought today, that the problem in their life is that they, they either really don't know Christ or they're so far from him that they can't be warmed by this wonderful truth. Help us as believers, God, as well, to, to recommit our time and attention and effort to this glorious Christ who alone is worthy. We love him so much. We recognize our failures and our flaws. But at the core, God, this is what we desire, for Christ alone, for God alone to receive glory for what he's done. As we close our service in these quiet moments, just before our baptism, we pray that you would seal these truths to our heart and that you would give us a greater love and a treasure for our Lord Jesus than we had and help us to ask honest questions and evaluate ourselves. Do we love him as we are? Do we praise him as we should? We thank you and we pray in Jesus Christ, our, our, our crucified lamb, our risen Savior, our coming King, the great God, Jesus Christ. Amen.